How would you like to do church like Jesus did? Over the past few years, we've learned that church can happen in a very meaningful way outside of a church building. In fact, we're getting raving reviews from our house churches, which are now over a hundred. Though I thank God for church in buildings and on campuses, God is leading more and more people these days to gather for church in their homes. Not only is it easier for many people to attend a house church, but a house church can provide a level of community that campuses can't. So, every Thursday in December and January, I plan to host a house church interest meeting on Zoom. The meetings will be at 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. If you're not attending a church right now and are interested, or know of anyone who may be interested in learning how to start a house church, simply email hcinfo at solidlives.com or click the link on the description of this podcast to receive the Zoom link details. Again, that's hcinfo at solidlives.com. Okay, now let me welcome you to the New Testament Daily with Jerry Dearman, where we read and talk through a chapter of the New Testament every day. I'm glad you're here because reading God's Word daily will change your life. I'd appreciate it if you'd help others find this resource by sharing the link. And now, let's get into today's reading. Okay, here we go. Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So let me just stop there and notice that the outset of this chapter, leaving, therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles. So the elementary principles, in other words, basics in the kingdom of God, basics about Jesus, and he is going to say, we're going to go on to perfection. We're going to go on to some deeper things. But he begins to list some of the elementary principles. It's interesting that so many believers don't understand these elementary principles, and that's because they hadn't been taught. But here they are. At least here are some of them. I don't think this is an exhaustive list. But he says uh, elementary principles such as uh, the foundation of repentance from dead works of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms. Notice not just baptism, like water baptism, but baptism, baptism with the Holy Spirit, the baptism into Christ. There are, there are several baptisms the Bible talks about. It goes on to say, uh, laying on of hands. Oh, this is a basic doctrine of resurrection from the dead and of eternal judgment. So there are several uh, important elementary uh, basic doctrines in the Lord. And so he says, leaving the discussion of the elementary and going on to perfection. And then verse three, and this we will do if God permits. God, we will go back over these elementary principles if God permits. Watch this. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. And let me just say that th this is saying, those who were once enlightened to these elementary principles, those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, this is talking about the heavenly gift of salvation, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. And I would, I would believe that's talking about being spirit-filled. 
and have tasted of the good word of God, just like we're doing here, learn from the word of God to where it's like, oh, you know you've heard from God. See, tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. In other words, the, the power of God that we experience now, anybody being healed from the sick, any demons being driven out and such, any prayers being answered, well, those things seem like exceptions to normal life here. But in the age to come, the power of God is going to be the norm. So we're here tasting of the powers of the age to come now, but eventually those powers are going to be the norm. So he's going on to say, in fact, let me go back to verse four. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, have uh, been partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, some people would read this and say, see, once you become a believer, if you fall and you, uh, it says if they fall away, if you fall away from the Lord, well, you're done. It's impossible for you to be saved. But that's not the way this reads. So notice he says, leaving the elementary or the basics of Christ, let's go on to perfection, for it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have been saved, partaken of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God. Notice, it's impossible if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Now, what is he saying? You can't just keep trying to teach them the basics over and over and over and force them to come back to repentance because you keep saying the basics over and over and over. He said, no, it's impossible to do that. You cannot just think if we just keep hammering them with the basics of the kingdom of God, then it forces them. No, he said, you, you can't do it like that. They have to have a choice in this. They have to choose to want to receive these things and to once again pursue the things of God. So it's impossible by teaching the basics again and again to renew people who have once been saved and have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance since uh, they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. In other words, they know they've walked away. <laughs> You're not going to convince them that of what they did just by hammering them. No, they know that. Verse 7, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings, blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Oh, folks, that's a direct reference to hell. In other words, if these people who have come to faith, tasted of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and they fell away, if they don't come and repent, oh, their future is to go to hell. And if anybody says that's not true, that is absolutely true. And by the way, this is one of the numerous passages in the Bible that show us that the once saved, always saved doctrine is not true. Like if you get born again, then you'll always be born again. You can never go back. That is so not true. And this is one of the passages that says, hey, look, somebody could have tasted all these things and fallen away. And uh, you don't, you can't hammer them and force them back with the uh, rehearsal of the basics. 
See, and this goes on to say they're subject to going to hell if they don't get things right. See, so this tells us right here, you absolutely can fall away from the Lord after having been genuinely born again and even filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he goes on to say in verse 9, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Oh, thank God for salvation and thank God for the things that accompany salvation. Fringe benefits in the Lord, we might call them. Things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, aren't you glad that all over the Bible, the Bible talks about people that were saved, but they fell away, but they came and they did repent and God forgave them. In other words, God doesn't say, look, you were here, you left. No, you can never come back. No, thank God for repentance. Proverbs says a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. And we also see in the word of God, people that were restored and uh, brought back around. The last two verses in the book of James says this. It says, my brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, notice among you, my brethren, believers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So there's another passage right there in the word of God that says that believers can generally uh, can genuinely stray from the truth and end up going to hell. But we can also come and, you know, go to them, appeal to them, love them, help them to know that they need to get right. And if they choose to, oh, they can repent and God will receive them and forgive them, put them right back on the right track. Thank God. But notice again, verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Watch this, that you do not become sluggish, verse 12, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. These two power trends are important. Power twins are important to inheriting the promises, faith and patience. Faith and patience. What does that mean? Sometimes we muster our faith by hearing the word of God or some powerful messages that we believe or meditating God's word. And we believe and we pray and we step out in faith. Well, we've noticed, though, that the answer doesn't always come immediately. And so faith needs patience. And I like to call patience sustained faith. In other words, I believed yesterday, I still believe today, I'm still going to believe tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, etc. And I'm going to hang on to this until when? Until I receive the promise, until the prayer is answered. And so that's faith and patience. And he says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't imitate the person that uh, just sticks with their prayer for a few days. No, but 
Imitate the people that stay with it and with it and with it and believe it and declare it and thank God for it until they keep getting these promises to come to pass. And the writer here says, imitate those people. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, and here we go, oh, we're getting into covenant now. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. You know, sometimes we've heard people say, I swear to God, and I don't suggest you do that. But nonetheless, people have said that I swear to God because they are looking for a higher power or being by which to share or by whom to to swear and not to share, but to swear. Watch this. But when God made a promise to Abraham, well, who is he going to swear by? It says, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he, Abraham, had patiently endured he obtained the promise. So now the writer here is giving you an example of someone who received a promise and believed, left Ur of the Chaldeans, left his clan, his family and such, and went to the promised land where God told him to go. But he patiently, patiently endured year after year. He actually never even got to build a home in the promised land. It was God saying, your descendants are going to come back and live here and have their homes. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Of course, he did obtain the promise of Isaac through whom the children of Israel came, the descendants of Abraham. So after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Verse 16, for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them, human beings, an end of all dispute. In other words, when somebody uh, says, I, I know that when I was a kid, my parents would say, oh, I'm going to take you guys maybe to Disneyland or something. And we'd say, promise, promise. And if they said, I promise, that brought assurance. Well, he's saying that in the days of the Bible, covenant ended dispute. So if somebody uh, said, I'm going to do this for you. And they say, I want you to swear in blood. And if you make a blood covenant, then to human beings, they would know now you're going to keep it because what you're saying by a blood covenant is if I don't keep this promise, then I, I die. I will die. You get to kill me because I didn't keep the promise. It is a blood covenant. So it says once again, it says in verse 16, for men indeed swear by the greater, like swearing to God or whatever. Men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation. An oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Once a blood covenant's made, that ends the dispute. Now we know you're going to keep your promise. Thus God, look at, look at this, verse 17. Thus God determining, God was determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and such, the immutability, that just means unchangeableness, the unchangeableness of his counsel, in other words, his word, his promise, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So let me unravel this a little bit. Because God knew that human beings 
would really believe the promise if an oath to confirm it was made. And this all happened, by the way, in Genesis 15, when God came to Abraham and he said, uh, I'm going to give you children like the stars of the sky. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then God said to him, see all this land, I'm going to give you the land. And that was that was a little over the top for Abraham because it was inhabited by many nations. And so Abraham, Abraham asked this uh, question. He said, Lord, how shall I know that I will inherit the land? And God said, bring out a three-year-old heifer, bring out turtle doves, bring this out, bring these animals out. And Abram knew exactly what to do. He brought these animals out. He cut that heifer down the middle and he laid the pieces because he knew God was saying, here's how you'll know I'll keep my promise. I'll swear it in blood. In other words, I'll swear it to my own destruction that I'll do it. So now... Because God knew that a blood covenant would settle disputes and convince the recipient that the giver of the promise would keep his promise, God said, I'll make a covenant. I'll make a covenant with you. Well, let me just give you a little parenthesis. Fast forward from Abraham's covenant with, in Genesis 15 in blood. Fast forward now all the way to Jesus because God really was bringing Jesus to make a new covenant in blood. And you remember Jesus with the bread and the, the cup in the la at the Last Supper? He said, this is my body about the bread. But with the cup, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. So he was coming now in new covenant days, and he was saying, I'm swearing in blood to keep my promise. Well, I love this in verse 17. It says here, Thus God determining to show more abundantly. So God was determined not just to make a promise and keep it. God was determined to convince us. God not only wants to make promises and keep promises, God wants to convince us that he'll keep his promise. Why is that? Because until we're convinced, we don't have the faith to receive it. So God went an extra step with Abraham and cut a blood covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15 for one reason, to convince him that he was committed to keep his promise so that it goes on to say, verse 18, that by two immutable or unchangeable things, we might have strong consolation. That word is comfort. Now, what does that mean? What are the two unchangeable things? One is the promise itself that we've got the promise of God. That's unchangeable. God cannot lie, right? Well, what's the other unchangeable thing? The blood covenant. God made a blood covenant with Abraham. And in the new covenant, he made a blood covenant through the blood of Jesus. See, and so why did he do this? One reason, to convince us. So let me explain this way. God doesn't need to be convinced that he'll keep his promise. He already knows he'll keep his promise. It's us he needs to convince God swore in the blood of Jesus, just as he swore in the blood of animals to Abraham, that he would keep his promise. Abraham became convinced, and we should be convinced that God will keep his promises. So this is what the two unchangeable things are. The promise of God, his counsel, his word. And the second one is the blood covenant oath to swear that he'll keep his promise. And by those two unchangeable things, we should have strong comfort who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, 
both sure and steadfast. This is what he wants the covenant and the promise to cause in our heart, an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever. Here it is again, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so we'll get into the understanding of Melchizedek in the next chapter. But once again, the Lord Jesus is our high priest, and God has made promises to us. Now he's sworn to us in the blood of Jesus. I swear I'll keep my promises. It may look too good to be true, but it's not. Not only am I able to do it, but I'm willing to do it. In fact, I've sworn an oath to do it. Thank God for his word and thank God for the blood covenant that we have. And by the way, uh, I did a series on blood covenant uh, teaching series that is in our Operation Solar Lives Discipleship that you can get at oslonline.com. And also the book that I wrote on God called God Swears which is God swears to keep his promises. And if you're interested in that book, you can go to solidlives.com and order it. But it just completely maps out the blood covenant in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. Fascinating and powerful study. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow. We're really going to study about Melchizedek and really Jesus tomorrow in chapter 7. Thank you for joining us for the New Testament Daily with Jerry Dearman. And thank you to those of you who have partnered with Solid Lives to help get this daily podcast and other resources like it to thousands of people around the world. If you would like to partner with Solid Lives, visit solidlives.com slash give. To find out more about the ministry of Solid Lives, how you can be a part of this church planting and disciple making movement, or for more great teachings and resources by Jerry, visit solidlives.com. We also want to invite you to check out Jerry's other podcast called The Jerry Dearman Podcast. Here, Jerry shares with us at least weekly from God's Word, challenging us and equipping us to fulfill the amazing plan that God has for our lives. You can find links to this podcast as well as Jerry's YouTube channel online at solidlives.com. Thank you again so much for joining us, and we'll see you right here tomorrow as we jump into the New Testament Daily with Jerry Dearman.